Well, good morning. Good to see uh, all of you uh, here. Um, and uh, I wasn't here uh, last weekend. I was with our uh, high schoolers down in uh, Mexico, but I heard you all had a bit of weather here last week. Yeah. Um, so uh, before I jump into the sermon here, let me say this. Uh, you know, uh, a couple weeks ago, I talked about some special Sundays that we're going to be doing that I'm really excited about uh, with Your Story Matters um, that are going to kind of invite some guests to be a part of a Sunday morning service. The first one was supposed to be this coming week, uh, dealing with like different faiths. Um, but because of scheduling reasons, I can't get us all together uh, on this platform next Sunday. So we're going to find another date uh, for that one. Uh, so just be uh, praying about that. But I'll let you know when we find that date. The one after that in April is going to be on race. Uh, and that one, um, I hope it will happen on the date that, and I can't even think of the date that we've got it uh, on. So I'll get back with you on that as well. Uh, but just wanted to let you know that. And it works out well in that. Uh, going over the content for this message on this, this uh, last piece of information that we wanted to cover it on This Is Us, it really is a, a two-week kind of deal. So we're just going to extend this message uh, to six, or not the message, the series to six weeks. And so I'm going to divide this one uh, into two parts, which it does uh, really nicely. And this one, what we're going to deal with here this morning, uh, is really something about who we are when it comes to spiritual maturity, when it comes to spiritual growth. When we think about, um, and we often call it this, right? My spiritual walk with God or my spiritual journey to maturing. Um, that's what this one deals with. And so let me, let me give you kind of the phrase that kind of captures uh, how we talk about this sometimes. And it's this, accept that you are accepted and then live out of that acceptance. That, that captures in a lot of ways something that we believe God has led us in and we believe in deeply and see in Scripture about the spiritual journey of maturity that we're wanting to move people in and toward. And so this week, I want to talk prim primarily about that first part, about accept that you are accepted. And then next week, I'm going to talk some more about living out of that acceptance. And to do this, uh, I'm going to, there's a book that really captures a lot of this. Uh, it's called The Cure by John Lynch. It's a really good book. It's a thin book, so it doesn't take as long to read. Um, and it's an allegory, so it's a very easy, easy read. <clears throat> and as I've read it a couple of times, and it struck me this last time that in allegory form, it catches some of the nuances and the subtleties of what the New Testament is talking about because it, it walks it out in a story format more closely related to how we experience our spiritual uh, journey here. So I'm gonna use this as a, a little bit of an outline uh, for this morning uh, because the main character in this goes on a spiritual journey, but literally, because it's an allegory, is walking a path. So when we talk about you know walking a journey with God, uh, the story has a literal path with signs and rooms and, and all of this stuff. And so it starts off, uh, he is, uh, he's a believer, he follows Christ. And of course, like uh, most of us, you know, early on when we first become a believer, there's this passion, this drive, like I want, I'm so excited about walking with God. I want to grow and understand this uh, better. How do I do this? And so he starts this journey walking on this path. And it's not long before he comes to this crossroads and there's two signs and uh, at first he's excited one sign uh, points this way and the sign is labeled pleasing God 
And then the other sign is labeled trusting God, which then confuses him a bit because he's like, well, we, uh, why do I have to choose on this? I, like, like there's this, uh, he, like he struggles over it. He's like, I, you know, I want to do the right thing, but it just seems like those are both the right thing. And to choose one means I can't choose the other. And he kind of goes back and forth, but in his heart, he's kind of like, but you know, there's this part of me in my heart. I want to please God. And so he goes down the path of pleasing God. And as he goes down the path of pleasing God, he comes to this uh, building and above the doorway going into this uh, building are these words, striving to be all God wants me to be. And he reads those words and he goes, yes, yes, I want to be all that God wants me to be. I will work at that. I'm ready to dive into that. And we can relate to that, right? There's so many times when whatever it is, you, you feel the, the, you know, the forgiveness of God in your life, or, you know, you feel the emptiness of this world in some way, and there's that part of you that just says, I'll do anything. I, I want to be the person God wants me to be. And so he uh, enters the door, goes in, and the name of the room, right? So he goes in, and the name of the room over here is the room of good intentions. And when he learns this, he's like, yes, right? The, like, that's me. Like, and, and so he begins to live this out. But um, uh, as he begins to live it out, of course, th there are these things that it just doesn't quite go the way he thought it would go. Uh, there's this kind of formula for living life in the room of good intentions. And at first glance, it seems like a great formula because the formula is simply uh, doing more uh, things that are right plus doing less things that are wrong equals godliness. Duh, right? It just seems like this is really easy, right? This is the formula. But a strange thing happens as he tries to live this formula out. It's like it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because there are a couple of spiritual truths that it's like violating in some way. And so I want to walk through those just uh, briefly. But uh, to do this, I want to look at the book of Galatians. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Galatians because... Um, Paul speaks of this a lot, and for this week and next week, I'm going to primarily work out of the book of Galatians, but I'm going to hit a few other spots because Paul and other authors definitely deal with this subject in a number of different places. But um, in Galatians chapter 2, look at Galatians chapter 2, um, we get this kind of first truth of why, why there's some failure points in the room of good intentions. And the first failure point is this. We can never resolve our sin by working on it. You just can't. Look at what uh, Paul says here. Look at verse 16, chapter 2, verse 16. He says this, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because the works of the law, um, uh, no one... By the works of the law, no one will be justified. It just doesn't work. It doesn't matter how sincere your effort is, right? It doesn't matter how good your intentions are. The second truth of, of why there's failure points uh, in that room or that way of trying to grow spiritually towards maturity is this, relying on good, uh, relying on good intentions to work on our sin has a negative effect on our lives. In the end, there's this weird thing to it in which not only does it not do what we think it'll do, it, it ultimately has a negative impact on us. And what's interesting is Paul walks this out. And I want to read just one verse where he talks about this. Flip over to chapter 3 is where he gets into this. Look at verse 
10, just quickly, he says this, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, he says, a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And he uses uh, the law, the, the Mosaic law and law in general as a way of describing that striving, that earning. Interesting as well in the book of Galatians, he also uses uh, flesh. And most often we think of uh, like when the New Testament talks about the flesh, we think of like sin nature. He actually uses the flesh here, uh, not just for sin nature, but also this idea of doing something in the flesh, in our own effort, in our own energy. And, and what he walks out here is when, and again, good intentions are sweet and wonderful. And it's not like you're doing something wrong. It's just that striving even with the best of intentions, seeking to please God. Ultimately, he says, is like a curse. You say, well, what is the curse in this? What, like, well, part of it he explains in this thing is because you get trapped in this thing where you have to keep on living the law. You have to keep on living that moral code. You have to keep, like, there's this thing that you, like, it, enough is never enough in the room of good intentions. And here's what I've seen, not just in my own life. I see this in, in many spaces and places in Christianity today. And it's, and it's this, I would describe the curse uh, this way. The path of pleasing God increasingly becomes the journey of keeping God pleased with me. And there's a subtle difference, isn't there? And it's a very important one. So often we walk in that room and it's like, I want to please God. But we get in that room and, and, and the curse is we, it's like that even with the best of intentions, the earning, the strike, it becomes that kind of hamster wheel where it's no longer about just the simple blessing God in some way. I want to do something that would be pleasing God. It's that now I'm doing all this stuff because I need him. I feel like I need him to remain pleased with me. And all of a sudden, the intent of what we do, how we live our lives, you know, I'm praying, I'm reading the Bible, I'm trying to avoid temptation and sin and do the right thing here. All of it is, it subtly becomes more about, is God pleased with me? Do I need to do more to keep God pleased with me? Oh my gosh, did I do something that I just, I lost God's, you know, pleasure with my life? It's, it's a subtle difference. Um, maybe one way to think of it is, is this. I've learned this as a husband, okay? And every husband in here will know this, right? Um, there are moments where I will struggle because I want Angie to be pleased with me because I don't like it when she's not, right? Things will go much smoother for me if Angie is in a good mood when it comes to her husband, right? right? That is different than, than moments when I say, I want to do something that just blesses her. And what I'm not looking for is how it will affect her view of me. Because I'm just gonna trust that. This is, this is coming simply because I, I want to do something that would be a blessing, something that would put a smile on her face, not because I feel like I need it, right? Not because I'm trying to avoid something. When I find myself as a husband trying to make sure Angie is pleased with me, right? and I'm sure there's no other husband in here that can relate to this at all, right? Um, that's when I tend to wear masks. That's when I tend to um, 
choose my words carefully and the timing of my words and that I'm starting to manage something. And so as this guy goes into this room of good intentions, what he starts to find is his spiritual journey is really all about managing all of that. He looks around and realizes everybody's wearing masks. At one point in the allegory, they hand him a mask to wear. And the thing that is said over and over in this room is, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm fine, because, right, Christians are supposed to be fine. It would be, it's not good, you know, because, you know, I'm following God, and everything's fine. And after a while, this just gets old, and he feels the curse of that hamster wheel of just, you know, going over and over again. And finally, out of frustration, um, he, he leaves it. He, he, he's like, I can't take this anymore. And he steps um, uh, out of it, and he goes back to that crossroads. And he gets back to that crossroads, um, and again, I, and I'm just covering chapter one in here, okay? But I encourage you to go get, get this. Don't worry, I'm not gonna go through the whole book, okay? Um, he gets back to that crossroads and there are those two signs, pleasing God and trusting God. And he's so frustrated. He spent so much energy and effort in this thing. It's just like, oh, and why can't they, why can't I have both? And why can't, you know, and he's looking for it. But this is his choices, pleasing God or the path of trusting God. And so kind of out of reluctance, he goes down the path of trusting God. And when he goes down to this path, again, he comes to this uh, building, and on this building, instead of uh, having the words embossed above the doorway, uh, you know, striving to do everything, that, uh, striving to be everything that God wants me to be, um, this room has something very different on it, yet very similar, and it's these words, living out of who God says I am. Because that's the difference between the path of trusting God and pleasing God. It's not about striving to do everything I can to be who God wants me to be. Trusting God is all about living out of who God says I am. Interesting thing happens to him. He steps into the room and he does not realize the weight of all the things that he was carrying and striving for and the shame that he was pocketing away and all this stuff. He walks in the room and sees all of these people and none of them have masks on and he bursts into tears, right? It's just all of this energy and all this stuff. And I'm sure there's been moments in your life where you were like, you were striving because you like, maybe you were the person that had to keep all the family dynamics together and you kept all of the peace and you sacrificed in this way and that way. And you had all of these, you know, nuanced conversations to make sure this person will get along with this person. Or maybe you had to do that at work or maybe in your own spiritual life, struggling, you know, with some temptation, you're doing all of this work, and you came to a place where you simply experienced acceptance, and it's just like you felt you didn't realize the weight of what you were carrying in the room of good intentions until you got out of there, and he does, and it's just, it he bursts into tears. What's interesting is, as after he kind of wipes the tears away, and he looks around, and he sees all of these people, and he instantly feels like, I have been so vulnerable in this moment. Like, like, like this isn't okay, because he's lived in a world where, like, you've got to manage all of that stuff. And so, like, his reactive uh, impulse in that moment is to kind of push people away by saying, you know what? Maybe I don't fit in here. And he goes through a litany of all, you know, you know, I didn't pray enough and I'm tired and I'm lazy sometimes. Then he goes in here, I'm, I give in to temptation. He goes through all of these things, right? He even ends with, and by the way, by the way, I'm in the debt up to my eyeballs and 
I'm not fine. <laughs> Just so you know, I'm not fine and I'm not going to say that I'm fine. And he says, and if you don't want me in your sorry little club, then I'll just leave. And he gets ready to walk out of the room of, of uh, trusting uh, God or off, back to the path of trusting God. And then someone in the room says, that's all you got? <laughs> yeah. And it catches him. And this guy goes, well, I'll up you, you know, and he goes through all the things in his life and everyone begins to laugh, but it's not a laugh of mocking. It's a laugh of saying, you're just real. You're just like all of us. And the acceptance that he experiences there becomes this life-changing kind of thing. And then there's this great moment in the book. Sorry to give it away if you're going to, but <laughs> go read the book. Okay, read the book, read the book. Um, the hostess comes up. And we now learn for the first time the name of this room. And the hostess says, welcome to the room of grace. See, not good intentions. That's nice. But your spiritual life will not ultimately be built upon your good intentions. Your spiritual maturity, the life-giving relationship that God invites you to walk with him is found in grace, in the room of grace. And it becomes this beautiful uh, thing here. Um, but as I say that, I also understand that like, there can be some confusion uh, over this when we, when we think about grace. And let me say this as well. Let me just pause for just to say this as well. I do not relate this stuff to you right now just from an intellectual standpoint. I know I'm going through a bunch of content here on this thing, but but the place that this value comes from in me and, 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 and why it's such a big thing in our church here, and not just because of me, other people have been on the same journey, but it is a personal thing for me, okay? I spent years in the room of good intentions. When, um, when I was in my early 20s, I knew God was calling me into ministry, and my first thought was like, no, I don't, what are you thinking, God? This is must have a big mistake on your part. And God's like, no, I want you to go into ministry. And so I took that seriously. And the first thing I did is like, man, if I'm going to go be a pastor, like the responsibility, the first thing I got to do is get into the room of good intentions and start stacking up the equation of more good things and less bad things, because I can work that equation the other direction, right? And this, and and I lived in that place and that curse, I understand that because I've lived it. I know what it's like to feel that thing where all of a sudden the best of my heart that would want to put a smile on God's face turned into a kind of weird worry of whether or not God was pleased with me and whether I was doing enough to keep God pleased with me or if I would do something that would cause me to lose that smile on God's face when he looked at me. And it's so subtle, but it pulls you in, but it becomes this kind of weight. So I say that to say that I believe, and this is something I've seen in, in, in the modern evangelical world, we struggle to stay out of that room. And so grace, part of the reason I think we get pulled in that room sometimes is because we think of grace maybe as like a, a very similar to forgiveness, right? We think about when I became a follower of Christ, I was forgiven. And I know it was through God's grace that I was forgiven. But understand this, grace and forgiveness are not two different words for the same thing. They're very different. 
And maybe one way to think of this first, understand it is forgiveness that flows out of grace, okay? Grace, maybe think of grace in this way. Um, grace, think of it as God's being, who God is somehow infused into your life. Right? Grace is, is more than just being forgiven. It is something about God that he is pouring, like fuel, that he is, he is pouring into your life. Uh, it, is, um, it, it is God's, uh, part of his being that you might experience as God's favor in your life. He is, there's a part of who he is and you experience it his, as his favor. You experience his strength in your life. You experience his joy. You experience his insight, his wisdom. And yes, you can experience his forgiveness. And so grace is like the fuel. Grace is like that part of God that is infusing um, himself in you. And it becomes this very powerful thing. And here's something, I don't want you to miss this. Our response, right, the primary way we live out God's grace is simply to trust it or to have faith in it. So when God pours his forgiveness in us, when he forgives you through his grace, you know what our job is to do with his forgiveness? Is to trust it is to have faith that we're really forgiven in this. You know what we're supposed to do with God's favor? is to trust it. And we'll do a whole sermon on just that sometime in the future. And I think it'll be life-changing. But whether it's God's wisdom, whether it's God's insight, whether it's his power to love someone that's hard for you to, whatever it is, our job is to trust God's grace and what he's trying to do uh, in and through us. That's our job uh, in this. Uh, look back at Galatians. Galatians um, chapter three again. Look at uh, verse 11. He says this. He says, clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because, right? And he's going to tell us why no one's justified, why you can't live a life on your own in the room of good intentions towards uh, that spiritual life you want. And here's, here's the reason uh, why. He says, because the righteous will live by faith or the righteous will live by trust. And we're trusting in his grace, what he is doing in our life. And don't miss this, friends. This is really powerful. He, and this happens in many, many, other, many, many other places in the New Testament. He's redefining what righteousness is. He's not said righteousness is, well, it's, you take all the good things you're doing, and you add that to all the bad things you don't do, and then, then on the other side of the equal sign, we get a number for how righteous you are. He's like, no, righteousness is not about what you achieve in the room of good intentions. Righteousness is will you trust in the grace of what God is flowing in and through your life? Will you let God be God in your life? See, in some ways, that sounds like such a simple thing. But the reality is, it becomes a hard thing to actually live out of. Um, and this is who we are. So in this series, we say this is who we are. Um, this is who we are. What we're not trying to do 
is Sunday after Sunday, teach the Bible in a way, because we could do this, right, that would keep pushing you into the room of good intentions, right? We could talk about all of these things that would make you go, oh, yes, I need to do that. And I want, because all that does is it leverages the best of your heart in the wrong ways to actually step away from living in the trust of what God is already doing in your life. And that's not us. We're not trying to motivate people in that way. What we're trying to do is actually move people the other direction in understanding that the life that they want, real righteousness, spiritual maturity, is found in this kind of journey of what does it mean to trust, to have faith in Christ. The same faith, have you ever thought about this? The same faith and grace that saved you is all too often the grace and the faith that we step away from in trying to be spiritual, good, wonderful, righteous Christians. And what Paul is saying is the grace and the faith that saved you is the grace and the faith that you should live by. Now, you need to understand this too. There was a group called the Judaizers in Paul's day, and they hated this. When Paul taught this, they went ballistic on this. But know this, they believed in the salvation of Christ. They believed that Christ died for our sins. They believed in faith and grace that would save you. But for them, it was like, okay, you bet, Jesus, right, his grace, it saved us, and we get to go to heaven now, and that's great. But you can't be telling people to then just, li- to put the law aside and just live by faith, just trust in the grace. No way. People will go berserk. People will run around. They're too, they're too weak. They've got the sin nature. They're too lazy. They're going to do what they want, and what they want is always bad. You turn people loose this way, and they are just, they're going to stink up the place. It's going to be awful. You can't do this. And they argued and argued against Paul. It is one of the primary reasons Paul wrote the book of Galatians. Because Paul is saying, nope. Under normal circumstances, I'm right there with you. But there are two truths, there are two truths of why Paul sticks to his guns and says the path of faith and grace is the path to follow. Um, the first one, the first one is this. By God's grace, we are a new creation. If you're in here this morning, you and you're a follower of Christ, you're a new creation. You have a new identity. And what Paul is saying is that changes everything. And the second thing is, and, and the book of Galatians just walks us out of the rest of the New Testament. The very spirit of God, the very spirit of Jesus abides in you. You have Christ in you. You are not alone as you walk out your life of faith. And for Paul, those are game changers. For Paul, that's the answer, see? You have a new identity. And so this morning, I want to focus on that part of it because that is the part that hits this idea of accept that you are accepted. And next week, we'll pick up this idea of now, what does it mean to live out of uh, that acceptance? But let me start with this, this uh, new identity. Because there's a part of us that gets it intellectually but we struggle to actually allow it to be a part of our walk, this idea of of acceptance in all of this. Um, And think about this. Think about all the places that describe believers in the Bible. 
Let me give you a couple of examples. Paul in Romans 8 opens up uh, the chapter with these words. There is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. None. John opens up the third chapter of his first letter with these words. See how great the love of God is, or how lavish his love is, that we, that we are called children of God. This is all identity stuff. Uh, Paul, in fact, if you have your Bibles, uh, keep your finger in uh, Galatians, but flip over to Romans, Romans chapter 8. Because, right, this is where he starts off. There's no condemnation um, uh, in Christ Jesus. Um, halfway through the chapter, he, it's like he just keeps working this out and working this out. And how he explains this is, is really profound. He gets down to verse 17. Look at this. He says, now, if we are children, right, if we're God's children, as John says, now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs. We're heirs of God. And now catch this. And co-heirs with Christ. Like, that's mind-numbing. We are co-heirs with Christ. Like, if that wasn't in the Bible, we'd all be screaming heresy, right? Blasphemy. You can't say we're a co-heir with Christ. But that's exactly what he says. And here's the point. That is your identity. That is the place you sit in. That is your place of acceptance. The way God looks at Jesus and says, I accept you as my son, that's the way he looks at you. Um, and I say this because the problem, the problem is not whether or not we're accepted, right? You can go all throughout scripture and it is as clear as can be, you are accepted. The problem that we struggle with in our spiritual journey is this. Do you know that you're accepted? Will you accept that you're accepted? That's the struggle. It's that lack of acceptance that wants to drag us off in the other direction. So Paul says this, flip back to uh, Galatians uh, here, and then I'm, I wanna just bring some application to this. Look at Galatians chapter two. He says this, um, verse, halfway through verse 20. Look at halfway through verse 20. He says, the life I now live in the body, so he's not talking about when I became a follower of Christ back when Jesus appeared to me, right now, what the life I live, my spiritual journey in the body right now, okay? The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I love these words. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. His whole point in Galatians is not to put out a treatise that we are accepted. He walks that out. But the problem that he sees, what he sees with those Judaizers, what he sees in you and me at times, is our struggle to accept that we're accepted. Like, even if it's there. And what we do when we don't accept that we're accepted, we're setting aside the grace of Christ. We're not trusting and that's our primary role. When it comes to grace, our job is just to trust in it. Whatever it is that God is flowing into our lives, we are to trust in it. And it can be a struggle to trust in our identity that we are accepted. Um, illustration of this, uh, uh, 
uh, years and years ago, like two and a half decades ago, I used uh, an, uh, in an illustration in one of my sermons about Madonna. And I ended up reading this uh, biography about Madonna to, to set up for this uh, illustration. And th- I, there were some things that were really surprising in it. You know, she grew up in uh, the Detroit area. Her mom died when she was very young, and she always kind of felt like the outsider. She struggled to connect, and she always got this sense of rejection growing up, just like, and she wanted to be a dancer, and there's so much competition that she faced in the whole dancing world, and she never broke into the dancing world the way she wanted, and so Detroit became for her kind of this symbol of, I'm not enough, I'm not enough. Uh, but we all know the story took a turn, didn't it, yeah? She found that she can sing a little bit, right? And so she went off and became this superstar singer. I mean, she rose to the top of the top of what you could be as, a, uh, as an entertainer in the U.S. And she made it so big, but she, wouldn't wa- she didn't want to do any concerts in Detroit. Like, they tried to get her to do these concerts, and she pushed it off and pushed it off because part of her, it's just like, like that, that's, I'm never enough there. So finally, she uh, agreed to do a concert in Detroit after a while. She flies in on a chartered airliner, right? Because she is big time now. She's going to fly in a chartered airline where it's only her and her peeps, right? And uh, her her fans, when they, they were so excited to have her come and do a concert in Detroit, and they knew about just her feelings and her discontent with Detroit and the feeling of being rejected that uh, hundreds, if not thousands of her fans... Uh, turned out the day she flew into, into Detroit and they found an abandoned, I can't remember, it was a football field or soccer field and got like these cards or whatever. And with, with these cards and their human bodies, they spelled out in giant letters, we love you, Madonna. Madonna actually saw it out the window of the airplane and was moved by it, deeply moved. Um, does the concert, uh, now, I couldn't find my notes, I couldn't find the book, so I'm a little sketchy on all the details on this, but as the story goes, right, I think she was back on the plane. As the story goes, she was talking to someone, and her words to them, she started to cry and said, was it enough? Was that concert good enough? Do you think they really love me? Do you think they'd want me, like, like, you wanna say Madonna? How many superstars athletes, uh, movie stars, entertainers, singers, dancers, politicians have their fan base turn out in open fields and with their human bodies spell out the sign, we love you, not even knowing if you'll see it out the airplane window, but just on the chance that you would, we would go out there and do that. That's extraordinary. But she couldn't accept it. And it's like she set it aside, see? That's our struggle. Our struggle is not whether or not at some theological level are you accepted by God if you're his follower. You are. Our struggle in our spiritual journey that pulls us down the path that we don't want to ultimately go is will we accept it? And so, friends, I just, I, I say this. You are accepted. And I know there's that part he goes, yes, okay, I get that. I know that, Glenn. But I, I mean this. Do you know that you are accepted? Do you, like, take a moment and think about, just for a moment, what, what is the one area of your life 
that you find yourself running back into the room of good intentions? Where is it that you just, your breath gets taken away just for a second because you just, there's that twinge of the, is God pleased with me? Maybe it's just over guilt of being like, am I a good enough parent? I was, like, does God look at me and am I like, am I like, am I a bad mom? Because I like, and you've got reasons why. Maybe it's like, you know, did I work hard enough this week? Did I do enough? Did I pray enough? Did I like, have I achieved enough? Have I, if I use my gifts? And what is that one area? And I want to ask you again. Do you know that you are acceptable? Like that God looks at you. And there is nothing, there is nothing that would cause him to say, I love you less over that. Do you realize there is nothing that could cause God to say, I would love you more? All of your striving, all of you, you can't get God to love you more. You know why? Not because he doesn't love you, but he loves you like a river of grace that flows in. You could spend the rest of your life memorizing and studying the Bible and could not fully comprehend how amazing and beautiful and full and powerful the love is that God has, not for anyone else in the world, but just you. Do you know that you are accepted? That on your worst day of your most shameful sin, where you bring your worst to the day, where you give in, where you don't care, where, like where, where you look back on the worst regret, do you know that on that day, you are accepted? Because that is the grace that Paul is saying, I don't understand it, but I will not set it aside. I will just trust it. I'll live as if it is true. I will live as if there's nothing I could do in this world that would cause God to reject me or frown at me or hate me or want to leave me behind. Do you have that? Because my question then is, what is it that keeps you from accepting it? What is that thing? And if you could get there, what would you have to let go of to accept that you're accepted? Is it a voice? Is it a voice from your past? You know, Madonna had the voice of Detroit. You're not enough, you're not enough, you're not enough. Is it your own voice? Is it a voice from your childhood? Is it a voice at work, at family? But the question is, can you trust that God's grace really is enough to accept you? That's the issue, see? And so let me just end with this illustration of just like, how do we get to that place where we can actually begin to live in this idea that we are accepted? And I wanna go back to the idea of grace because again, grace is so much more than just forgiveness. Grace is the thing that moves you through life. It is God's, it is what God has declared you to be. You realize we all have two gods, okay? And I know you're going, that's blasphemy. Okay, just hang with me, right? We all have two gods. We all have two gods. We have the God that we see through our lens of shame. And then they're the God that is. 
And part of not setting aside the grace of God is to begin wiping away the lens of shame and seeing God more and more as he is. Because that God, that is the God that gives you the wisdom, the strength, the favor, the forgiveness, whatever it is to live your life. And your failure points or whatever they are, like they don't matter because his grace is there. And here's my illustration on this. Most of you know, like I love to surf. And when I first started surfing, um, uh, I did a lot more paddling than I did riding waves, okay? I did a lot of paddling. Uh, you would see me out there, and I'd be motoring around with my own two arms, like, <laughs> you know, trying to, just, you know, just trying to do everything. But here's the deal, right? You can, like, I, I could have lifted weights. I could have gotten my cardio up. I could do, I could do everything in my own power. I could motor around out there, paddling as hard as I could in my surfboard, and it's just like, like this. Catch one wave and you go exponentially faster and you're freer. Like you just, you get to move. Like the difference between paddling around in the ocean and riding around in the ocean on a wave, there's no comparison. It's what pulls you back again and again to go surfing, right? That is the thing. Here's how I want you to think about grace. Grace are like waves. Great. They're like this beautiful thing, right? You get out there and you struggle and you do all this stuff. And then there's this thing where you let go of trying to just force your way through everything. And there comes this magic moment as a surfer where everything about your effort is not about actually doing anything yourself to move you forward, but it's only about how do I catch this wave? Because the power is in the wave. It is not in my arms. And that's grace. Grace is this amazing thing. Our job, right, it's not passive. It's not to say, okay, I do nothing now. It's like, no. Your job is to give up on paddling around in your life on your own, and your job becomes this thing about how do I catch God's grace in my life? You want to love people that are hard to love? Quit trying to do it yourself and let God work that in your life. You're like, this is how it works. And here's the beauty about waves, right? I could go out, I could go out, and it, this is still true, right? I miss far more waves than I catch, okay? That's just true. There are surfers out there and they're catching waves left and right. I go out there and I don't know what the percentage is, but I miss a lot of waves. And most of the waves that I catch, I'm crashing and burning on, okay? Like I fall off those waves. I don't, I don't get a full run every single time, right? But here's the beauty of it. You know why I don't care? I don't care if I miss that wave. I don't care if I try something new and it's wonderful and I fall off the wave. You know why? Because I know what comes after that wave. Another wave. That's right. And a wave after that, and a wave after that. I can miss a dozen waves in a row, and that ocean just keeps on sending more waves. That's why God made the ocean. I'm, I'm, I believe, <laughs> right? It's a very spiritual place. Um, I love God for making waves and making the ocean. But that's grace. That's grace. And when I crawl out of the ocean at the end of the day and my arms are like numb spaghetti and I can, you know, I can barely lift my surfboard up to stick it in my car or my truck and I look back over that beautiful ocean and you know what I see? Waves. And when I leave, the waves are still going. And when I get up the next morning and I get my cup of coffee and a great big wonderful donut and I go out to that ocean and I drive up and the first thing I see when I look out at the ocean is what? Those waves. And they just keep on coming. And if I wait 10 minutes to get in the ocean, it doesn't matter because there's more waves after that and there's more waves after that. And friends, that is God's 
grace. That is the beauty of it. It is this thing where you get to say, you, you get to leave the place of good intentions. You don't have to worry about keeping God pleased with you. He is pleased with you. He loves you. For crying out loud, he said you are a co-heir with his son, Jesus Christ. Get in the water. Start trying something. Live by faith. Because here's the thing. You may try it and you may fail. There may be something in life. You give into that temptation. Okay, I get it. You don't like that. But there's another wave coming. And God's grace is there to pick you up and move you in a way you've never moved before. There's someone that's difficult to love. There's some situation. You make a decision. You're trying to navigate what is the best decision here. You're not sure. And you make a bad decision. Okay, so you crashed. But God is sending another wave of grace. Wave after wave after wave. You are accepted, friends. And the thing, this is us. What we are seeking to do at this church week in and week out is not to motivate you or anyone else to get your act together, to, to guilt you or to, or to leverage shame in any way or to make you feel like you've got to get out there and start paddling or you're in trouble with God. I don't care how well behaved you become. I don't care how much scripture you memorize. I don't care how great your doctrine is. If you're doing it because you feel like you need to for God to be pleased with you, that's not righteousness. What we at this church want you to experience is a kind of grace that begins to transform your life so that you are focusing on living out of who God already made you to be. And the transformation that flows out of that is like catching the most amazing wave. May that be the thing that you catch. Why don't you stand? I'm going to close this in prayer here. Um, and let me just say to all of you who are guests this morning, it is so good to have you. I'm going to be right over here in this area we call the living room area, and I would love to just shake your hand uh, here this morning. Let me pray, because I'm over. I'm done. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you so much for those waves of grace. I thank you for Paul's words that just keep coming back at us and back at us, encouraging us to not set aside your grace and to simply trust in who you have declared us to be your children accepted fully. And we pray this in your son's name, amen. Have a great week. See you next Sunday.